All right, well, our sermon text today uh, is John 9, 1 through 12. Uh, And I think that's what we have printed here. Yes, it is. Okay, Uh, let's stand. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming, and no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, He spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sin. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. And how are your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, may the words of my mouth, meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, continuing along... In John's Gospel, new chapter, chapter 9. Uh, a whole new episode, chapter 9, is a, a unified, also complex story. A story that starts with Jesus healing this man with congenital blindness. Um, as we jump into this, it's good for us to remember what the purpose of John's Gospel is. John is not just writing a biography of Jesus. He's, not actually, he's actually not writing like the other three gospel writers uh, to give us a, a, a comprehensive record of what Jesus is doing or to give us a, a particular look at Jesus as a Jewish Messiah. John is writing for a different purpose, and he writes a different way. And as we've talked about at different points in this series, that purpose, that way that he's writing, he states it explicitly at the end of the gospel. Uh, it says this, John 20, 30-31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these signs, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is writing, it says here, he left a lot of things out. But he recorded these things, these signs, so that people would believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in that believing, people might find life, real life, 
God's life. That's why John's writing. So as we look at John 9, this story, we need to keep that in mind. The Gospel writer, John, teaches us about Jesus in his Gospel, mostly uh, using one of three ways, one of three methods. There's three ways we learn about Jesus in this Gospel. One is sometimes John teaches us about Jesus directly. He he is the writer is speaking to us about Jesus. Like, like the like it starts out in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John the Gospel writer's voice teaching us about Jesus. Also, John three sixteen, the famous verse. That's John the Gospel writer's voice telling us something about Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's the gospel writer teaching us directly. Another way that John teaches us about Jesus is by giving us, um, by allowing us to overhear private conversations Jesus has with individuals. So Jesus had that private conversation with the woman of Samaria at the well, and we overhear it. Um, it's clear that at some point Jesus sat down with John and told him what happened and we believe that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit John was able to relay that to us. We get to overhear Jesus teaching or speaking with individuals and we learn a lot about Jesus that way. But there's a third way that John teaches us about Jesus in his gospel and it fascinates me that this particular way is mentioned in that big idea verse that gives us the purpose of his gospel and the other two aren't this way is John this third method of teaching us about Jesus is by giving us accounts of what John calls Jesus's signs um, that big idea verse um, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. But these, these signs are recorded so you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. When John records Jesus' signs, it's fascinating to me that he says, this part, this part has special, uh, this, this part, it's almost like he's saying this part has special power. I recorded, I didn't record everything, but I made sure to record these signs because when you see these signs, when you hear, when you hear about the signs, that's when believing happens. And when believing happens, you have life. That's fascinating to me because all of John's gospel is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus did was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit-anointed person. But there's something Special And to be honest, I don't even know if we can name it. But there's something special about the signs that Jesus performed. John draws our attention and says, look especially at these things. Now, when John talks about signs, these are the object lessons that Jesus performed. Most of them are miracles, like turning water into wine, healing the government official's son, when he healed the disabled guy who was hanging out at the like the pagan healing pool, uh, some of them are uh, uh, like I don't want to say performance pieces, but like like 
actions that Jesus performed that, that would send a message, like his temple protest when he went in and he slipped it. That's a sign. So signs are the things that Jesus did, object lessons. And he, John identifies this whole story of Jesus healing the man who was born blind as one of the signs. Here's why I'm telling you all of this. It's, I know that for me, especially being a person who's grown up in church, when I read the stories or hear the stories about Jesus' miracles, it's very easy for me to go, to read it as sort of a, look what Jesus can do story. (laughs) Like, oh, Jesus did this amazing thing. He can do awesome things. Great. That's fine. Uh, But that's not how we're supposed to read it in John. Maybe when we read the other Gospels, we can read it as, wow, that's amazing. Jesus did that. Praise God. That's great. But when John records these miracles, he's not just recording it and telling it to us so that we would know Jesus can do awesome things. He believes that in recounting the story of this sign, we can consider the sign and actually uh, enter into the thing it signifies. They're not just miracles. They're, they're like uh, they're performance pieces. It, it's almost like a miracle that's also a parable. It's also like a, a little action sermon. So, we'll be in this story today and at least next week. Maybe two more weeks. Or if I continue to talk slowly, three weeks. Let's all together, let's Let's look at it and, and, and try to take it in and turn it over in our minds, turn it over and over and over, meditate on it, because there's something that this story symbolizes. There's something it signifies. And by considering it as a sign, there's believing in there that we can have access to. So, in that way, I want to look at the story this morning. What does this story signify? What does it point to? What is it showing us? What is it showing us that we need to believe? Well, uh, you guys, I guess everybody here knows that my dad is a Southern Baptist pastor. And because of that, I just, I, I grew up with it. I can't resist the urge when it's possible to alliterate three points for a sermon. So today we have three points and it's alliterated. Um, here we go. What is this signifying? Well, I think it signifies, it shows us Jesus's priorities, Jesus's power, and Jesus's plan. Priorities, priorities of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the plan of Jesus. Uh, It doesn't just come from my Baptist-trained preacher brain. (laughs) Uh, Let me show you in the text, in the story. So, this story tells us something about Jesus' priorities. Verse 1 through 5. As he went along, as Jesus went along. Do you guys remember where he's coming from? It's been like the last... There was the big feast of tabernacles, the biggest feast of the year, teaching in the temple, living water, that whole deal. 
And then Jesus had to slip out because people were like picking up stones. Okay, so he slips out, he escapes, and now he's walking along. Uh, is it immediately after this or some time passed? We don't know. But according to the way John wants us to read this is imagine Jesus left the temple. He's walking along. And then it says he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? He was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus' priorities. Uh, according to the way John tells this story, Jesus had just escaped a huge confrontation with the religious establishment where he almost was killed. And he's walking along, and it says that he sees, he saw this blind man, and he stops and talks to him. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. He sees this guy, he stops and talks to him. John does this thing, he uses sort of this play on words, Jesus is the light of the world. To live in blindness is to live in darkness, metaphorically. Jesus is about to restore this guy's sight, and the whole thing starts with Jesus saw this man. There's imagery here that John is mixing in because he wants us to feel the power. Well, we'll get to power in a minute, but I guess the power, the significance of the fact that in this moment, Jesus sees this man and he stops. Uh, this man, we know from the story, has often been overlooked. It says that he was a beggar in verse 8. Later in the story, we find out that the man's parents live nearby and he's known by the whole community. Now, if somebody is disabled, they live near their parents, and the whole community knows them, there's only one reason why they would need to live as a beggar. And I think we can call that reason if people aren't actually seeing him or her as a human being. This man is in the, like the, by, uh, we look at it, here's the guy he lives, everybody knows him, his parents live nearby, even the religious leaders know who he is, he's blind from birth, uh, in this time and place, there's not like a job he can go work, and he resorts to begging on the side of the street. Uh, that means that the people around him had come to a point where they no longer saw him as a human being. But Jesus, even in this moment, when I would have thought that there were more important things to do, like keep running for your life, <laughs> or take a minute to cool off, Jesus sees this person as a human being, and he stops, and he takes time. Jesus prioritizes this man. Jesus prioritizes this man's humanity. Um, his disciples, they look at this, they, they, they see that Jesus is looking at this guy, maybe approaching this guy, and they say, Rabbi, teacher, master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They see the guy too, but 
they before they recognize this guy as a human being like Jesus is doing they, they pass right over that and they turn this guy into a into a religious or theological case study they dehumanize the guy too it was common in the ancient world it's even happens in our world today for us to look at folks who uh, are living with pain or suffering or hardship and say well they're in that situation clearly because they did something wrong or maybe their parents did something wrong uh, we do this uh, in the Old Testament there's I mean there's reasons for this there's passages like the second commandment which say that you know sins will be passed down through the generations um, there's passages like that. Uh, there's also passages which talk about each person uh, dealing with the consequences of their own sin. So there's legitimate reason to ask theological questions like this. But it's their timing. Their timing totally stinks. Because they really are turning this guy into a... Here's Jesus looking at this guy, going to this guy. Oh, hold on. Clearly someone sent here who... Can you, you can feel uh, the dehumanizing that's going on. Um, but Jesus brings them right back on track, again, showing his priority for this person uh, and for this person's humanity. Neither this guy sent or his parents. It's almost like Jesus is saying, guys, don't worry about that. What matters is that this man is living in such a way where God is ready to work in his life. Jesus rehumanizes the person. By telling us the story of this sign, John is inviting us to believe in Jesus as God's person who prioritizes hurting people, who prioritizes people in pain, people who suffer, people who are at the bottom. Jesus says the last will be first. Uh, sometimes we haven't sang it in a while, but we sing a song that comes out of Isaiah 40, which says every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be brought low. It's looking forward to Jesus. Jesus goes to the people at the bottom first. He prioritizes them. He sees them as human when we see them as something less. This story shows us this, like a sign, signifies this truth about Jesus. This is who he is. Um, I wonder if you yourself have ever been in a situation, uh, I don't think anyone here is born blind, so I want to be careful with comparisons, but I would be willing to bet that everybody here has been in a situation where they felt uh, overlooked, they felt maybe dehumanized by someone else uh, or where they were struggling with something and your friends or your family turned what you were struggling with into a theological equation to be solved. I know that I have felt like that. Um, I have a, you guys know I have a significant uh, vision disability and I have definitely been in situations where other Christians Start asking me questions about it. And where the conversation is going is they're looking for a reason I haven't been healed yet. <laughs> but, well, does Charlie not have enough faith? Is there a, what did Charlie do? 
Um, Maybe you guys have experienced something like that. Uh, I also think we often do what the disciples did. We tend to dehumanize in the name of our faith. Um, uh, I think about the way we as Christians often talk about or wrestle with uh, issues related to equity. Issues like racism or economic inequality or even issues like the rights of queer people, LGBTQ plus folks. Somebody will raise a question. What do we do about uh, this struggle of uh, people of color? What, what do we do about same-sex marriage? What do we do about this other, uh, about sexism in the world? And, and, and instead of starting with, oh, these are people we're talking about who have families and feelings and beliefs and hurts and goals and aspirations, Let's look at these situations as human beings who are loved by God. And what does the love of God mean in their life and in our life together? We don't approach it that way. We start with, oh, well, you know, theologically and biblically, uh, this is God's design for sex and gender. This is God's design for uh, racial uh, religion. We treat people like theological equations to be solved. We do this. So when we read what the disciples did, I read it and I go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But then immediately I go, I do that. And I think that's how we're supposed to read it. But then we look at Jesus. And even though he's one of us, he's human like us. He came to us. He loves us. He calls us to himself. He's not like us in the way that he interacts with people. In the way that he interacts with people in God's name. He prioritizes people, prioritizes humanity. He prioritizes our hearts, even our feelings. The passage in Isaiah, here he comes as the just judge, going to make everything right, overthrow the empire and all that stuff. But he doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't trample on hurting people. So we look at this sign, and we should ask, do we believe in this Jesus? Or do we believe in some other picture? Well, in this picture of Jesus, we find life. All right, the story also, uh, it signifies, it shows us a picture, a sign of Jesus' power. He heals the guy. Uh, the guy was born blind, and he heals him. Now, uh, often, when I read or hear the stories of Jesus' miracles, like we talked about before, I'm tempted in one sense to see it as a look what he could do story. There's more than that. At the same time, there's another temptation for me. It's to act like it's not that big of a deal. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. If you're a Christian, you believe that. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, the greatest miracle, whatever. I mean, it's incredible. Well, of course he can heal a blind guy. I think but John is inviting us to try to look at this miracle from the ground up. Uh, here's a person who was born blind. Jesus isn't restoring the guy's sight. Uh, he's creating something entirely new for the guy. That's power. He is powerful. And again, he uses that 
power in a way that prioritizes the goodness of this man. But it's power nonetheless. Jesus has the power to transform our lives. That's what this sign is showing us. He can actually change you. Even if you were born uh, the, the way that you were born, he, he has the power to change your life completely. Um, oftentimes in life, we as human beings, uh, we have our spirituality, we have our religion, uh, we have our beliefs, and if uh, I think so many of us, maybe I'm being presumptuous here, I know I do this, we, we take our spiritual practices, our beliefs, our piety, our religion, and we sort of file them in a place in our life that's labeled for, if you can imagine taking those things and putting them in a box, and that box is labeled tools for trying to be a better person. <laughs> uh, I think me and so many of us, we do this here, we believe what we believe we, because we want to be better people. And somewhere we think that if we pra- practice these religious exercises, if we do these spiritual things, we will grow into being better people. Maybe there's truth there. In fact, I think there is truth there, but only to a point. We can become better people by practicing a certain way of life, practicing a certain set of beliefs. We can grow into better people, uh, but we can't, and we don't have the power to completely remake ourselves. We, We don't have the power to die and rise again, metaphorically. But Jesus has that power. I was talking with a friend this weekend about religion. My friend was sharing me some, with, with me some spiritual practices that he's interested in, in starting. And I was encouraging him because I, I think that's great. But I walked away from that conversation and I found myself thinking, you know, the thing that makes the gospel different from folk, religion, Christianity or maybe even other religions, is that those things are about subscribing to a set of beliefs. Those things are about practicing a certain way of life, doing certain things. And the gospel might include those things, but the gospel is not about those things. The gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus. We're not here because we're interested in being religious. We're here because we're, we all are attracted to the same person. We all love the same person. We've all found that we're loved by the same person. This is personal. Why is that? Because he's the only person that has power to affect me like he does. No one else loves me like he does. No one else has changed me like he has. He has power, and enough power to do what he does without destroying me. That's incredible. So Jesus has power, and we see it because the way he heals this guy. 
by telling us the story of this sign, John is inviting us to believe in Jesus as God's person who has the power to actually transform us into what God desires us to be. Uh, that's liberating. That means that we're about to sing it later, the song, Come and Rest in the Love of God. It means we don't have to work our way up a ladder to get to enlightenment, to get to God, to get to better... He comes to us and does his work in us. Uh, well, how does he do this work? Well, that's the third P. This sign shows us Jesus' plan. It shows us Jesus' plan. How does Jesus, who prioritizes us as human beings, who actually has the power to remake us and renew us and enlighten us, how does he do it? Well, in the story, this sign, it says, uh, after saying these things, after saying this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. This is a picture. This is a sign that signifies the way Jesus transforms lives. What does it look like when God, who prioritizes loving us, prioritizes us, comes into our life, exercises his power, and makes us new? Well, it looks like Jesus standing or kneeling or sitting in front of a guy born blind and Jesus spitting on the ground, making mud, putting it on the guy's eyes and telling the guy to go wash in this pool called scent. That's what it looks like. Okay, Charlie, could you help us understand that? (laughs) Um, Jesus, his actions here are speech act. So let's break it down. Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud with saliva, and puts it on the man's eyes. Okay. What Jesus is doing here, he's not just he's not being eccentric or weird. Well, maybe a little. Um, he is acting something out. Um, later in John the Gospel Writer's last book, the book of Revelation. He gives this account of his grand vision of when God makes everything right in the end, right? Uh, This is near the end of Revelation. John writes, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from, from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them, be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Okay, so that's what God is in the business of doing in our world making everything new making the hurt and the dysfunction and the sin pass away and he's ushering in new creation when Jesus spits on the ground mixes it and makes mud and puts it on this guy's eyes he is acting out new creation remaking 
Uh, we have those verses in the Old Testament which says that God is like a potter and we are like the clay. He makes mud and puts it on the man's eyes. It's a picture of that. When, in Genesis, the story of God creating Adam, it says that God took the dust from the ground and he formed man and they got down and breathed into the man, into the human, the breath of life. And, and this speech act thing, we see these things symbolized. Uh, it's not breath, it's saliva, but then he makes mud like clay, like a potter, and he takes this man who was born without blindness. Uh, it's like there was a part that was not created, and Jesus recreates this guy's whole ability to see. That's what Jesus is doing. It's a symbol for recreation. Further, um, this thing in Revelation, God's like, I will be with them, I will be among them, I will be close to them, they will be with me, among me, close to me. There's intimacy in this thing Jesus is doing. He's sharing himself with this man. Try to just imagine for a second, uh, you were born blind, uh, and then you know everyone else can do this thing called sing, which you can't do, but it's hard for you to imagine what that even means because you've never done it. Sort of like when we try to imagine the color that you've never seen. It's impossible. Uh, people who are born blind, they don't just see darkness. Seeing is not a thing that they uh, physically understand. So here's a guy that if he was the only person in the world would know himself as a whole person, not disabled. Uh, seeing is something he's never been able to do. But, Jesus, but he hears all these other people can do it. And Jesus gets, in this man's whole life, he's been alone, he's been isolated, he's been overlooked. Jesus stops, he kneels down in front of him, and next thing the guy knows, Jesus is touching him on the face. Uh, some other scholars think that maybe there's something about this as a picture of anointing. Remember, Jesus is the one who anoints us or baptizes us in the spirit. He's touching the guy's face. I imagine, maybe, maybe not, but he may be praying something over the man. It's this man and Jesus so close. And this is Jesus' saliva. This is like physical body fluid. This is intimate. This is close. So what Jesus is doing is through, he's recreating um, in a way that's, that's intim- intimate, in a way that's restorative, but you, you get the picture? That's what Jesus is doing. Now, his plan. Jesus comes to this guy who, who outside of people telling him, would never even know that something was wrong. He comes to this man intimately, personally. He shares himself with him in a way this man is united with Jesus in this moment. And Jesus does recreation. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Uh, The pool of Siloam was the place where during the Feast of Tabernacles, which just ended, that whole, remember the water pouring ceremony? Uh, and the last day of the feast, everyone's in the temple. They, they bring a huge thing of water. It comes from the pool of Siloam. And they pour it out in front of the altar. And it's supposed to 
symbolized the water from the rock. And at that moment, Jesus stands up. Remember what he said? If anybody's thirsty, come to me, and springs of living water will flow out of them. And then John writes, he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So right after that story, Jesus tells us this story where he anoints this man, recreates this man, uh, is intimate with this man. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And we as readers go, the pool of the Holy Spirit anointing. And that pool is, Siloam means sent. If we were reading John's Gospel, what does Jesus say over and over again, almost every single story? He says, I'm the one who comes from the Father. I'm the sent one. I come to you from the Father. So Jesus intimately does recreation with this man. Then he has this man go wash, go be anointed, go be baptized in the pool of the sent one, which is the Holy Spirit. You see the symbolism here? Jesus prioritizes this man. He has the power to change him. And the way Jesus changes him is by becoming intimately united with him and then having this man washed and changed by the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of coming to faith in Christ in the gospel. And after that, what happens? He comes home seeing. He comes home transformed. He comes home having something that he never had before. By telling us the story of this sign, John is inviting us to believe in Jesus as God's person who prioritizes hurting folks, even us, who actually has the power to make things right and to recreate the world. And he does that by offering himself intimately to us and by giving us the Holy Spirit. That's what this story is a picture of. So we read it, and we ask, is that the Jesus I believe in? Because the alternative, and we'll see this again next week, like we've seen it a lot, is to just subscribe to some religious system where you do certain things. And if you do them right, you get to be a better person. So we watch, we hear, we read this sign, and we're offered a choice. Which way do you want to live? Do you want to live by a set of rules, practices, and formulas, which might make you a better person if you do it really well? Or uh, you can live in such a way where you are seen and prioritized and loved by God who sends his person into your life to love you completely to be loved by you without hindrance and then he even gives his whole self to you by washing you and including you in the life of his spirit so we see the sign and we say repent and believe the gospel this is Jesus let's pray